This next song we introduced for the first time a few weeks ago, and I just wanted to say a little bit about it. It's rooted in Malachi um, chapter 3, verse 6, where God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And a way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, and then I'll invite you to sit. God, thank you for your word. And Lord, your word is an indictment this morning to every one of us, and I'm first in line, God. Help us to respond to you, to your word, with humility and repentance. Thank you for the grace that lurks nearby, the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, we are back, and you heard our text for the morning, Romans 3, 9 through 20. Uh, I was looking back at some of the first messages we had in the series back in the fall, and one of the quotes from uh, John Piper, he wrote that Romans is as solid and durable and reliable and unshakable and thorough as the truth can get. Of course, we've also commented how Romans is the greatest work of theology ever written. Uh, Martin Luther famously wrote that it is the very purest gospel. It contains the very purest gospel. And along with um, Bob or Robert Yarbrough, he was actually one of uh, the speakers at the theology conference that I was at in Chicago. Um, in his commentary on Romans, he notes that while we speak of Romans as this great work of theology, which it is, um, and it contains the very purest gospel, and it's solid, durable, reliable, unshakable, thorough, and all of those things. 
we need to remember that it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church or a group of churches in, in Rome, and it covers a wide range of theological points. I spoke to someone a week or two ago from our church who on a, on a road trip decided to listen to the whole book of Romans. And that's good, and that's uh, something I would encourage you to do. We have, most of us, smartphones or devices, and for free, you can open up a Bible app and just listen. And you ought to do that at some point if you haven't or if it's been a while, because we, we can miss the forest sometimes, and, and uh, Romans is big, and there's a lot to cover, but it covers things like this. We, we find God's glorious, eternal, saving purposes and plan. We find the very specific good news message, gospel, which we'll look at again this morning. It speaks of human sinfulness. It speaks of the wrath of God and judgment. It speaks of the cross and Jesus' resurrection as God's means of human rescue. Don't listen to Romans right now, whoever that is. (laughs) Romans speaks of justification, that being made righteous. We'll speak of that in a moment. That is by God's grace through faith in Christ and his person and work. Romans speaks of the struggle of sanctification. Romans speaks of the triumph of God's love amid cosmic anguish. It speaks of God's faithfulness to his promises and and faithfulness to his people. The call to self-sacrificial living in love for God and for others. Romans affirms how um, fellow Christians, um, how we are to, to treat one another, um, even when there's secondary and, and tertiary differences. Romans speaks of the centra- centrality of mission, that is, evangelistic or sharing of our faith to others, and which is part of the Christian life. It speaks of the centrality of the scriptures. And these all emerge in 432 verses that contain over 7,000 Greek words, over 9,000 in English. The richness of Romans can perhaps be appreciated as we comprehend that over 60 commentaries on Romans were written in the first two decades of the 20th century alone. And over 740 Romans commentaries have been written in the course of church history. It's rich, it's rich, it's rich. The very purest gospel, as Luther said. You know, it's interesting, though, about news and good news. I was thinking about this this week. We, we often talk about the, the, the good news. Um, and, and I was reminded of something. Some of you may be familiar with um, kind of a teaching. I, I first heard of it in, in the 90s. Um, Ray Comfort, he's an evangelist, and uh, he wrote a little book and did a lot of talks um, and kind of the tagline was, hell's best kept secret. Anyone raise hands if there's some familiarity there a little bit? Um, so he, he kind of, this again, a long time ago now, but he talks about how good news often, if, if we talk about the church and it's a place for good news, we, we invite people to come and find fulfillment in Christ and, and, and you know, purpose and all those things. But what happens uh, is that people try it on, so to speak, and then life happens and they go all of a sudden, what I was promised doesn't, doesn't quite work. And, and so his whole thing is good news isn't good unless we know the bad news. Um, I was thinking about vehicles. Some of you know we, uh, one of our vehicles died not too long ago. And uh, so we, we have a replacement vehicle. And, and then anyway, recently one of our other vehicles was in getting some work done. 
And, and it, didn't, it didn't cost me too much. Okay, I'm, I'm not mechanically inclined, um, and so I, I marvel at, like, I have, I have about six neighbors going down to the right of my house that they're all major mechanics, and I think, boy, they save themselves so much money because just the cost of labor um, for mechanics is, is so high and, uh, and so on. So I actually got out of the mechanics for under $100 um, this last visit, but I was thinking about, uh, you know, what if I were to, uh, to, to you know, come back to my car and uh, and they were to talk to me about oh you know yeah here you go your, your car's all, all set and good to go um, and uh, and then the bill was you know something like nine hundred dollars and you know well, why you know I mean would, that doesn't seem good you, you know why is that good I thought I was just getting an oil change you know but if they they said to me Mr. Ortlinghouse you know the brakes in your car they, there was like nothing left like one more punch on the brake, you know, and that, that brake pad would have dissolved and, and you would have hit something or, you know, so we, we put new brakes on and whatever millimeter they're supposed to be at, or maybe that's the tires, I get it all confused, but like it's, it's the numbers are where they're supposed to be now. Like if that was all explained on the front end, then okay, I'll pay $900, you know, to be safe and to keep people I drive safe. You, you know, we, we have to understand generally you know, some, some bad news, if good news is to really be, be good news. And, and then we talk about the gospel. We're going to look at that again here in a moment, that, that, that God has done a work to save us. If we don't understand what we're saved from, eh, well, do I really need it? Does it matter? If, if we're just trying Christianity on, I tried this, I tried being a good person, I tried this, you know, I'll try some Jesus. We, we have to understand um, what, what the good news is, is good for. And, and that, again, gets at why Luther and others would call it the very purest gospel. So one more time to catch us up, you see on the screen, Romans um, begins with uh, the Apostle Paul giving a greeting, and it's very typical for how letters were written in that day, um, a word to uh, who he was writing to uh, and who he was, and then a word of thanksgiving. And so uh, those first 15 verses are, are beautiful, as Paul kind of opens up, again, who he is and why he's writing to this church. He had never been there at this point when he's writing. He'd heard of them. He had heard of their faith, and he longed to, to go there. And so he gives them these, these nice words. Then Romans moves very quickly uh, to what you see in yellow on the screen, uh, the theme of the letter. The two most important verses, I think, in the whole book, and they're on the screen now. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, which again, that's just a Greek word that means good news. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. John Stott, famous commentator, writes, In the gospel, God's righteous way of righteousing the unrighteous has been revealed. This, this word, righteousness, justification, again, these are words that we will see over and over and over. And what Paul writes here, that this news about the person and work of Jesus, what he did, 
his life, his death on the cross, all of it most especially is the good news of what God has done. And in that news, it's um, God, the righteous one, righteousing the unrighteous. And, and it's, this righteousing is revealed in, in the gospel. The righteousness of God refers both to who God is when he righteouses or justifies but also to what God gives. God is righteous, and he righteouses those that are unrighteous because that's who he is, but in doing this, he, he gives us a righteousness that is not our own. It's alien or foreign. It's external. It's to be received. In other words, you and I can't righteous ourselves. We can't go to church 50 times a year and, and be excused two of them and be righteous. We can't, you know, give more and more money so the budget, you know, is perfect. We, we can't pray six hours a day and, and make ourselves righteous. We can't feed all the homeless in our city. And, and, you know, whatever thing we do, work, and we'll hear that in our passage today, none of it can make us righteous. And that's the argument, the, again, not argumentative, but the argument Paul is making throughout this whole letter. And as we'll see a little bit later in Romans 3, verse 26, God is both the just and the justifier or the righteous and the righteouser of the one who has faith or trust in Jesus, Romans 3, 26. So this is the heart of it all. And so this gospel, this good news announcement is, again, shorthand for the essential Christian message. There's more, yes, but there's not less. It's the heart of Christianity. And so we come now, today, back into the outline, we're in the big heading number two, the universal need for God's righteousness, again, to be received. And this is what Paul's been taking three chapters to talk about. And it's universal, but he drills down first on to Gentiles, Greeks, non-Jews, and that's chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. Then in chapter 2, he began to shift and speak to his fellow people, the Jews, that they too are unrighteous. They may be moral, they may be religious, they, they've got the book, the law, circumcision, all of that, but it doesn't make them righteous. And then finally, what you heard me read a few moments ago, back to what you see in yellow, all humans, all humans are unrighteous. And so for, again, three chapters, he's been demonstrating this reality and that because we're unrighteous, God's wrath and God's judgment fall on us. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And it continues. Or Romans 2, verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So wrath, judgment, we deserve it. We're unrighteous. We're guilty. It's universal. All humans are unrighteous. And what Paul does now in these verses is he brings all this to a conclusion and an implication. And that's what I want us to look at in these passages. As commentator Doug Moo calls this passage, the conclusion of this indictment along with an implication in response to this, this conclusion. The conclusion is going to be right in verse 9. It's going to start our passage. What's the conclusion of this? 
universal, all humanity being unrighteous, and then what is the application or implication we'll see at the end of this text. And in the middle, this string of Bible references, Old Testament references to us, where Paul proves his point. So let's take a look together. First, we have in verse 9, the conclusion. Paul says, what then? I mean, this is his way of saying, in conclusion. Like, I've, I've been spending three chapters, Romans, writing to you, you Gentiles, writing to you Jews. What's the conclusion? What's the point of where I've been going? That's essentially what he's doing with that first question there in verse 9. And then he follows it with a second question. Are we Jews any better off? Now, what's interesting, this question and answer format, it's been all throughout chapter 3, the first verses. Uh, Paul's been doing this diatribe thing we've talked about. He's had this imaginary um, person he's had this argument with, kind of a rhetorical style from his day. And if you look back up chapter uh, 3, verse 1, there he writes... Well, then, what advantage has the Jew, or, or what value is circumcision? And, and based on everything he said in chapter 2, the answer we'd all expected was, no, nothing, clearly. But there in verse 2, he writes, much. There is, there is value. There is an advantage to being Jew, to being a Jew. Um, and again, he speaks, God, God gave you the book, people of the book, the oracles of God. God gave you the sign of the covenant. There, there is value, not value in making you righteous, just like if you, if you have the blessing of being raised in a Christian home, some of you do, some of you do. There, there's blessing in that, it doesn't save you, but there's blessing that, that comes in, in that. So there's a blessing in being uh, Jewish in your ethnicity. And so he right, goes into this stuff there in 3, 1, 2, 8, and so now in verse 9, doing the same set of question answers. He says, well, what then? Are we Jews any better off? And so now we're inclined to say, well, yeah, I guess, I guess the Jews are better off. But this time he says, no, not at all. Actually, um, the Jews aren't better off because now, again, he's drilling down this point that being better off, having the, the book, being people of the sign, it doesn't make you righteous. And so he says in the end of verse 9, we have already charged, I've been saying it, that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin. Are under sin. Notice the singular there, sin. All people are under sin. The commentator says this, throughout Romans, Paul refers to sin in the singular to make the point that the many sins people commit stem from a single basic fact. They are helpless slaves to sin's power. This fundamental human predicament is matched by God's work in Christ to break through sin and liberate humans who are enslaved to it. We, we will see this again and again as we get into later chapters of Romans. This, this power that sin has. Um, it's what theologians call total depravity or radical depravity. It doesn't mean that people don't do some good things in life. There's a lot of good that people do, but, but it doesn't make you righteous. We're, we're sinners because we sin. We're enslaved to this, and it's the verdict of Scripture, and it's universal. No one escapes it. We are all under 
sin that is controlled to it. This is the conclusion he's been arguing. We are all under sin. There it is. The conclusion for the last three chapters. Human predicament. Everyone is unrighteous. Under this, this control, this power of, of sin. And now what Paul does is he uses a collection of, of quotations from several parts of the Old Testament, most notably the Psalms, uh, to make his point, um, again, about sin being u- universal. Some scholars think maybe this is a collection uh, of passages that the, the Christian church had already come up with, and Paul has learned it uh, as he's been a Christian, right, and, and has, has come to know how to apply the Hebrew scriptures in this way. It doesn't matter one way or the other, but there are passages in our Bible that, that seem to be kind of early creeds or confessions, and, and this could very well be that. Um, rabbis would do this. Uh, they would string together uh, these kind of things. They called it pearl stringing uh, and so forth. And so he's going to cite several Old Testament texts on this particular theme. But before we look at them, Again, I just want to circle back to this, this phrase, under sin, this, this legal term. It means like to be a citizen of, of, of sin. When, when one writer puts it this way, imagine you have your passport, and let's say it's a spiritual passport, and our legal citizenship is either stamped under sin or if the gospel, the, the righteousness of God has, has made a change, then The stamp is under grace. But but his point is that until that work happens in a person's life, Jew or Gentile, religious or unreligious, moral or, you know, no morality, all are under sin. And again, it doesn't mean that every person is as sinful as the next person. Um, Don't look at the person next to you, but you might be less sinful than the person next to you, you know, at a human level. You might be. Of course, if you think you are, probably you're not. Thank you. There are not degrees of lostness. All right. What is his proof for this? Well, the, the scriptures have a lot to say. I put these texts in, in chart form, and again, uh, just from a resource that I have in my library, but it just helps to see. Um, Paul knew his Bible, his Old Testament, as we would call it, the Hebrew Scriptures, and so uh, he begins in verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And he's pulling there from Psalm 14, Psalm 53, possibly Ecclesiastes as well. None, none, no one. That's, again, sort of the summary of everything now he's about to say. Verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Again, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are very much the Psalms that he is quoting and referencing Again, no one, no one, none is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Now, we may, we may push back on that a little bit and say, but, but Paul, Apostle Paul and Paul, oh, Paul, some people do, some people seem to seek for God, and yeah, there is a sense that 
people look for something to help them with life and help them manage and but to seek God on God's terms um, unless unless God does a work unless God draws Jesus is the one who said no one can come to the Father unless they're drawn no one come to me excuse me he says in John 6 no one can come to me unless the Father draws them so so there might be a utilitarian reason that people seek God, or it is God drawing them, but, but people don't just seek after God unless he is first doing, doing a work. He continues in verse 12, once again quoting from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And then he begins to um, speak about um, bodily organs that, that show this. And I got to be honest with you, this, this week, and getting back into the text for today, I mean, I just was stopped in my office, stopped along. My street walking several times, especially reading verses 13 and 14 here. Again, quoting from Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10. Listen to what the Apostle says, um, especially related to, to our speech. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, poisonous snakes, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Oh my goodness. Man, that was me. It is me sometimes. Oh. James would write, in his letter about how with our mouth we, we praise God and we curse men who are made in his image. Out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, James says, this ought not be. But it's true. James says our tongue is, is the small little thing and it's like a rudder on a ship. That small little rudder steers a big boat and this little thing, boy, it... it Sets our life ablaze. <laughs> uh, let's just be honest. How many of you have ever gotten in trouble with your mouth? Our speech, our speech, our speech reveals that we aren't righteous. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are a ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known, verse 17. Proverbs, Isaiah 59, I mean, shootings at a Super Bowl parade 
continuing two major wars happening on the other side of the world. But again, the stuff in our heart, the stuff in my heart, the, the, the feet that are swift to shed blood there, verse there's 15, right? And we can't get very far if, if you've been in church and you've heard teaching from Jesus, right? If we, if we have hatred in our heart, it's as if we're murdering. We're, we're indicted. I'm indicted. What, what's striking, uh, the first, uh, more than half, but these quotes uh, that the apostle pulls from the Hebrew scriptures, they're about God's people's enemies. They, <laughs> the pagans, the, the other nations. But, but you know what's striking here? These last ones out of Isaiah, uh, these refer to sins of the people of Israel. Paul knows this. He's, he's subtly again making the point, hey, listen, you know, to my fellow Jews who can be morally self-righteous, don't think it's just them that are, that are unrighteous. <laughs> we are, have feet that are quick to, to shed blood, and, and, and our past is ruin and misery, and the way of peace we have not known. And then, verse 18, there are is no fear of God before their eyes. I'm not going to take the time, but the, the theme of an understanding of this, this teaching on what it means to fear God, it, it's, it's all throughout the scriptures. God's people are to fear him. Not af- afraid, I'm terrified, like a horror movie afraid, but, but godly fear, the call to fear God is, is, is to be one of reverent awe, and if we understand who he is, we, we would have this, what the Bible calls, fear of him before one's eyes, before one's life. He, he holds our life. He, he, he controls all things. He's not like us whatsoever. And so this is, again, he's made this conclusive statement and gone through, and this kind of acts now as the bottom line. There is no fear of God. And again, before their eyes, um, not, not just the enemies of God's people, but God's people. Jesus would, would, would quote from the Old Testament and speak about how even in his day, when people would come to worship, um, they, they would draw near, but their hearts were far from him. You know, one of the things, um, every week, um, there's several different groups that, that meet to pray for this gathering. Um, and that's one of the things I know is prayed for in both groups that, that we, and this doesn't mean we have perfect weeks and that we're perfect people, because we're not, but, but that we'd understand that when we come, we, we want to behold God and, and have his word correct our thinking and, and, and warm our affections and, and not just come and play lip service, but wow, God. And with that, Paul brings to a conclusion what he has been arguing. And that leads him then in verses 19 and 20 to wrap up with some application or implication, we, we might say. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So, so at this point, Paul is saying, okay, we, we know that the law, and, and 
Sometimes when, when Paul and other New Testament writers speak of the law, and even in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, the, the law of the Lord and, and so forth, sometimes it is very much the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, but often it, it's a way to just cover the full instruction of God's word. I think that's what he's doing here. He's just quoted from Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Isaiah, right? He hasn't been in the law, but now he says, uh, we know that whatever the law, whatever the scriptures as a whole speak, uh, whatever they speak to those who are under the law, right? Uh, it's for them, just as we are all under sin, that same kind of wording we saw at the front. Now he says, okay, Jews, we know that we... we need to hear this because we are under it, okay? But, but then his argument moves from lesser to greater because he's indicted everyone several ways and several times. So we know that whatever the scriptures say, it speaks to those under the scriptures, under the law, but so that actually every mouth may be stopped. I don't think it's just, you know, him writing thoughtlessly. Every mouth, these mouths that I have throats that are like an open grave, just filled with death, that, 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 that are deceptive, and, and that, that have venomous poison, and cursing and bitterness. So he says, we know that the scripture speaks to those under it, but actually every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For, verse 20, by the works of the law, and again, not just like doing the Ten Commandments, but, but any good work, anything the scriptures call people to do, any kind of work, no human being, no flesh, will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And that is, therefore, our, the implication. Like, everyone's unrighteous, and, and everyone is filled with this list of sin, and we're stopped. Our mouth is stopped. We're, we're exposed, accountable to God. Because law-keeping, law-doing, you know, what Martin Luther would talk about, monkery, being a good monk and being really good at monkery, it, it does not justify a person. That is, it does not allow someone to be declared righteous. That's what it means, again, to be justified, counted righteous. Because this law, the scriptures, what do they do? They reveal sin. God's word reveals sin. Uh, Pastor Chris, two weeks ago, spoke a little bit on this, and again, worth you hearing that message again um, from, from the book of Galatians, how the, the law acts as this tutor. Uh, back in ancient times, these tutors would take kids and, and navigate them all around in their education and, and, and so forth. And, and so the scriptures, they, they point out that this is, this is the reality of us. Um, again and again, I come across stories of people who, the way they come to faith in Jesus is, is by the book, by the book. Not by being told, just try it on, come give it a go, your life will be better, you know, just come experience Jesus. But, but people have to know that they, they're, 
even if they aren't totally sold out that God exists and his rules matter, that even their own laws, they fall short. And again, it's, it's hard work to convey these things to folks, and, and that becomes the job of yours and mine. How do we, what, what missionaries call, contextualize? How do we help people in our world understand that they are unrighteous? And that's a problem. That's a problem for them one day. That life is more than right now. And then we all need to work on that. But this is Paul's indictment. All of us. Religious, non-religious, Christian, non-Christian, we are, we are under sin. That's his conclusion after all three chapters. And again, the point, friends, is that rescue can't come from within. But as I, as I mentioned, um, grace is lurking. The gospel is lurking right here. Because where Paul is going to go next at verse 21, I'm going to just let you hear it. You can look at it. But now, the righteousness of God. Remember, we, we saw that back in 116 and 17. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from rule-keeping, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And then verse 22, this righteousness, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. And he's going to go on to speak of this amazing work of God righteousing the unrighteous. And that, that glorious gospel is, is coming. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, a different letter to a different church, similar words. It's on the screen. Paul says, we know that a person is not justified, declared righteous, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, declared righteous, by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. How many times, Paul, can you say the same thing and repeat it, and repeat it again, and circle back? Three times, I think he does there. And if Paul can do that in one verse three times, you'll hear me say it again and again and again in this message. Because like someone said this morning in, in getting prepared uh, for our service, uh, th this is bleak. If we are all under sin, if we are all in this status where there's no one righteous, what do we do? Are we supposed to just walk out discouraged and know the, the promise of the gospel looms? And so, friends, we're, I'm inviting us all to stand, and we're going to sing... Uh, one final song um, that, that uh, is, again, a reminder for most of us uh, of, again, what God has done through Christ and the invitation to come to him again and again. Because maybe, like me this week, as, as you heard Paul's pearl stringing of these verses, you're, you're convicted. And that's okay. If you're feeling some conviction, that's a good thing. But God wants you to repent. God wants you to say, God, I'm sorry for the venom that comes out of my mouth. God, I'm sorry for just the cursing that, that, that is there. Or, or again, feet that are quick to do evil and, and whatever's there. Don't despise God's word bringing conviction. But if you're in Christ, I love this line from an old hymn. He breaks the power of canceled sin 
so much deep truth in that. If canceled sin has happened, that is, if Christ's perfect life and his death have been applied to you, if you've been justified, then the power of being under sin has been broken. So yeah, you'll still sin. We all do. But there's no more power. He breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the captive free. So, so celebrate what he's done and, and confess, make the fellowship right with him. And again, you're being sanctified. Sometimes your life may feel like a crawl. It's not like when we first come to Christ and we shoot up and all of a sudden, you know, we, we don't look at this anymore. We stop talking this way, we, you know. But then all of a sudden, it sometimes feels like, man, we're just crawling. It's about direction. And maybe some in the room have yet to experience a canceling of sin. And this is all just new. And you're invited to receive the Lord Jesus. His life, his perfect life in your place. His payment of sin instead of you. He took the wrath. He took the judgment so you wouldn't have to. And if you're being drawn to that, I'd love to have you come talk to me. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to meet with you and help you understand what these implications are. But let's, let's pray and sing and celebrate the, the grace that is, that is lurking here, even after such a, a dark picture. So, Father, thank you for your word. We need to be reminded that you, God, are righteous, and you are all about righteousing those of us that are unrighteous, which is all of us, for none is righteous. And thank you that we are forgiven, and we can be forgiven when we sin. Ours is to come to the altar and again and again and again confess, praise you for the forgiveness, receive forgiveness. And thank you that you're the God who saves. We call on you as the God who saves. And I pray if there's any this morning that you're calling to save for the first time, um, Lord, bring new life. As Romans later will tell us, um, with the mouth we confess, we agree with what your word says about us and about Jesus, and we are, we are saved. With the heart we believe, with our mouth we confess to, to receive this work that you do, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name.